I was hanging out in the back while uh, we were singing, and as I was listening to your voices, praise God. And now as I look at your faces, I want to share how encouraged I am to be with my church family, you know? And um, I'm Pastor Michael. Um, for those of you who are new, I, we're going through a sermon series in the Gospel of John. And today we're going to talk about unbelief. Unbelief. And the question that we're going to be grappling with is, why do people reject Christianity? Why don't people believe in Jesus? And it's quite a conundrum, because if the God of the Bible is real, if Jesus Christ is the Son of God, then we should expect the case for Christianity to be overwhelmingly persuasive, undeniably persuasive, because it's true, because it comes from God. And yet, many people do not believe. And they don't believe not because they haven't ever heard the gospel. Uh, They don't believe not because uh, they haven't heard a particularly eloquent case for the gospel, but they don't believe even after hearing the gospel in all of its fullness. And some people stop believing after having become a Christian, after years and years in the church, serving in the church, they stop believing. If Christianity is true, how do we account for that? How do we explain that? And so for the answer, we're going to look at John chapter 12. John chapter 12 is the last chapter in this gospel of Jesus' public ministry. Because when we get to John chapter 13, we're going to go into the upper room, the Last Supper, and Jesus' final instructions to his disciples. So John chapter 12 is the last time that Jesus is engaging and teaching the crowds And it is the conclusion, then, of three years of public ministry. And at the end of these three years of public ministry, John chapter 12 tells us that the crowds rejected him and did not believe in him. And so our passage is answering the question, why? Why didn't they accept him? And as you could see um, from page four in your bulletin, it's a fairly lengthy passage. And what that tells us is that unbelief is not just one thing, it is a complicated thing. It's a multifaceted, multi-layered thing. And so we're going to look at that. So turn to page 4 in your bulletin. I'm going to read to you from John chapter 12, verse 31, all the way down to verse 43. As I said, it is a fairly lengthy passage, but it is chock full of insight and, um, and complexity. So let's read it. So Jesus begins... Verse 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Jesus said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? 
Who is this son of man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been received been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. This is the word of God. So I have five points. Okay, five points. Number one, we're going to look at the arguments for unbelief. Number two, we're going to see that unbelief is a pre-commitment. Number three, we're going to see that halfway belief is not enough. Number four, we're going to see the urgency of now. And then number five, notice I don't have number five in the bulletin, but I'm putting in number five because that's how I roll. Number five (laughs) is Jesus' teaching that we are to walk in the light. Okay. So let's begin. Number one, the argument for unbelief. Now here I want to give you the argument of the crowd And then I want to immediately connect it to today, and I want to show you that it's the same argument. It's the same kind of argument that's happening still today. So let's look at the argument. Verse 34, the crowd says, we have heard from the law, and they're talking here about the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. We have heard from the law that the Christ will remain forever. And they are responding to what Jesus said in verse 32, that as the Messiah, he is going to die, and he's going to be lifted up on a Roman cross. Now, to first century Jewish ears, that made no sense. That was just utter nonsense. Because in the first century, the expectation is that the Messiah was going to be this heroic king, and he was going to annihilate the Romans. And you have to understand, they're not just cooking this up. They're not just dreaming this out of nowhere. There's a lot of scripture that supports this understanding. So, for example, Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is a very important passage. It is the most quoted psalm in all of the New Testament. There's something like a dozen different references, because it's, it's, a, it's a Messiah about, it's a psalm about the Messiah, And in Psalm 110, it says that the Messiah will subjugate all of his enemies. In fact, the vivid language there is that he will make them his footstool, right? The Messiah will rest his feet on the carcasses of his enemies. 
He will rule over the nations. He will restore the glory of Israel. He will reign with with justice and peace, and all of his people will, will live in prosperity and joy forever and ever. That's what Psalm 110 says. And so the crowds, they don't just disagree with Jesus, they're offended by what he says. Because he's talking about a crucified Messiah, a suffering Savior. And I want you to see that this is less of an intellectual argument and it is more a protest of the heart. It is less an intellectual argument, it is more a protest of the heart because if you think about it, these two things are not incompatible. The glory of the Messiah and the shame of the cross. In fact, in the gospel, they go beautifully together. But in our flesh, we don't like it. It offends us. It scandalizes us because that means that suffering and pain is how God accomplishes his good purposes in this life. Um, Years ago, I was listening to a a debate with Sam Harris. Sam Harris is a fairly well-known, prominent atheist. Actually, he has a podcast in which um, I listen to occasionally um, where he interviews thinkers and writers, and it's very stimulating. I I really like Sam Harris. I, I can imagine he would be a really good friend to talk with. But Sam Harris, he he goes around the country doing these debates about the existence of God. And at this one debate, he was arguing that the God of the Bible cannot exist. And this is the case that he made. This is his argument. He said, you have to consider that every year around the world, nine million children die before the age of five. He says, nine million, this catastrophic toll, right? And behind that statistic is just unimaginable suffering. And then he says, you can imagine that in almost every case, the parents of those children, the parents of those children fell on their knees and they cried out to God, And they desperately prayed for healing and for rescue and for the life of their child to be preserved. And he says that in every one of those cases, those prayers went unanswered. It fell upon deaf ears. And then he says with vehemence in his voice, he says, what sort of God would do that? If such a God exists, he would be a monster. It reminds me of... uh, a conversation I once had with a friend who was very much opposed to Christianity. He, was, uh, he strongly did not believe in Christianity. And so I asked him, uh, why? You know, what are your reasons? And I remember this conversation so vividly. We were, we were walking along this path, and he said to me, he basically said Sam Harris's argument. He said, how can a good God allow, permit, all of the evil and the suffering in this life. How can that be possible? And I said to my friend, I I basically gave him Tim Keller's answer to this question. Tim Keller wrote a book called The Reason for God, 
great book. You should all read it. And he has an, he has an entire chapter devoted to this question. It's called The Problem of Evil. And there's this particular line that I thought was so eloquent. Let me read it to you. He says, If you have a God great enough and transcendent enough to be mad at because he hasn't stopped evil and suffering in the world, then you have at the same moment a God great and transcendent enough, listen, to have good reasons for allowing it to continue that you can't know. And so that's what I said to my friend. I mean, not in those exact words, but that's the gist of what I said. And my friend paused for a moment, and he said to me, he said, I don't accept that. God has to have a reason. He has to tell me the reason for the evil and the suffering, or else I won't believe in him. And I want you to see that the problem in that statement, because my friend here was demanding a reversal of the roles so that he now sits in the place of the judge and God is now the defendant. And unless God provides good enough reasons for all the evil and suffering of this world, and my friend will be reasonable... If it's a good enough reason, my friend will acquit God and he will then believe in God, but otherwise God is guilty and God cannot exist. And I want you to see that that is not an intellectual argument. That is a protest of of the heart. And for my friend, I think it is less of a matter of disbelief and it's more than my friend is mad at God for the way that he has governed this world. So that's the first point. Second point, unbelief is a pre-commitment. Look with me to verse 37 there in the middle. Very important verse. It says, Though he, Jesus, had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe. And what this shows us is that unbelief is not for lack of evidence. Because Jesus, in his public ministry, provided Many, many, many miracles. In fact, if you get to the end of the Gospel of John, it says that if he had written down all that Jesus said and did, um, all the books and all the libraries of the world could not contain them. And so Jesus provided evidence upon evidence, argument upon argument, and the people still did not believe. Bertrand Russell, another famous atheist, was uh, once asked, he said, he was asked, in a debate, supposing that you die and then you discover that in fact the creator God exists. What will you say to him? And Bertrand Russell, without skipping a beat, said, I will ask him, why didn't you give me enough evidence to believe in you? But Bertrand Russell has been given enough evidence. Psalm 19, verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The fingerprints of God are evident everywhere in this world if you have eyes to see. And so, how do you explain unbelief? And so the Bible says that unbelief is not the absence of something, it's the presence of something else. It's not the absence of evidence or arguments 
but instead it's the presence of this spirit of deep hostility and resistance to God. If you read the Old Testament, this is the history of Israel. And this is the argument, the point, that the apostle is making when he quotes from the prophet Isaiah in verse 38. He quotes from Isaiah chapter 53, verse 1. And it's part of this larger passage talking about the suffering servant of the Lord. And the prophet says that the suffering servant of the Lord, when he comes, he will be despised and he will be rejected by his people. Why is that? The prophet says because that is what the people of Israel has always done to all the messengers of God. If you look at the history of Israel, they have seen so many miracles. Right? The parting of the Red Sea, miraculous provisions in the wilderness, mighty deliverances from the Philistines and the Canaanites. And still, they're stiff-necked. They will not believe. Right? It's kind of amazing. You have this generation of Israelites who witnessed the most spectacular miracles that you can imagine. Pillar of fire at night, manna from heaven, parting of the Red Sea. And still, they went after other gods and they would not worship the God of Israel. How do we explain that? The Bible says, unbelief is the default mode of the human heart. Unbelief is the default mode of the human heart because the human heart is in rebellion against our Creator. And because we are in rebellion against Him, we cannot acknowledge Him. Because to acknowledge Him is an existential threat to our autonomy, to our security. And therefore, we are not neutral observers in this matter. I like the way R.C. Sproul puts it. He says, sinners seek for God the same way thieves seek for the police which is that they don't. (laughs) They run and hide because it's a threat. But I want you to know that our predicament goes even deeper than that. And look with me to verse 9. It says, Therefore, they could not believe. It says that they were unable to believe. They didn't even have the capacity to believe. And then he quotes from Isaiah chapter 6, verse 10, God has blinded their eyes and he has hardened their hearts. Now, this is a very difficult passage. I wish I had more time to unpack this. But basically, this is the, the intersection between the sovereignty of God and human free will. And what this text is saying is that unbelief is both a matter of human decision so that we are the ones doing it, we're the ones deciding to unbelieve, and and at the same time, it is God hardening human hearts. It is God's doing. Now, some of you are saying, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense. It's got to be one or the other. Which is it? And the Bible's answer is, it's both. So that human beings are 100% responsible for the moral choices that they make so that there's no excuse so that we are justly condemned for our unbelief and at the same time 
God is 100% in control of everything that happens. And, and all, all the activities of this life, including human unbelief, is what God has ordained from the beginning. Think about that for a little while and it'll cook your noodle. But why is this important? What this is telling us, and listen to me, this is important. What this is telling us is that faith is a gift from God. Faith is a gift from God. Listen to Romans 9.18. Paul writes, Therefore, God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy, and he will harden whom he will harden, so that if anyone is to have faith, it must come from God. We cannot generate this on our own. And therefore, if you want to believe, the first step is to admit you can't believe. It's to confess your inability to believe by your own power. That's the first step. Mark chapter 9, there's a beautiful story. A father with a, uh, a, a boy with an unclean spirit who has, this, um, who has these very dangerous seizures. He brings his son to Jesus and he says, if you can, please heal my son. And Jesus replies, he says, I can only heal your son if you believe. And the father replies, he says, I do believe, but oh, oh, help my unbelief. And then do you know what happens? Jesus heals the son, because that's the first step. The first step is admitting you cannot believe, that, that you need divine help to believe. That's the first step. All right, so point number three, halfway belief is not enough. So look with me down to verse 42. The text says, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. It's really interesting. And so what was going on is that there was a significant number of religious leaders who couldn't deny the evidence. They couldn't deny all of the signs. They had to acknowledge that Jesus is from God, that his power must come from God. That's the only explanation. So the text tells us they believed. It's not in quotes. They believed. But they did not follow through on their belief. They did not live. They did not change their lives in accordance with what they believed. So that what had started out for them as belief, in the end, became unbelief. I think this is one of the scariest verses in all of the Bible. Because what this is telling us is that it is possible to start out with faith. It is possible to have an emotional experience of faith. It is possible to have a season in your life when you believe, where you have all of the appearances of spiritual life, but then in the end, to be lost to be spiritually dead. This is what had happened to these halfway believers. 
And it's really interesting, right? Because it doesn't say that they believed. And then, you know, they thought about it, they reevaluated the evidence, and then they didn't believe. But rather it says that while they believed in Jesus, they also believed in something else. They believed essentially in two things. Their hearts were captivated by two things. And this other belief, this competing belief, then suppressed and inhibited their faith in Christ. Look with me to verse 42. It says they believed, right? But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess their faith so that they would not be put out of the synagogue for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So that's the answer. It's because they loved the glory that comes from man. What, is it, what does glory mean here? Glory is whatever your heart finds to be the most beautiful, the most excellent, the most precious thing. Whatever that is, that is your glory. And what it means to believe, therefore, is to find your glory in Jesus Christ. Listen to Paul in Philippians 3.8. He says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So Paul says, Christ is my glory. And if Christ is your glory, that's going to relativize everything else in your life. Everything else in your life is going to be pushed down into a distant second place, so much so that you could even say it's rubbish, it's garbage compared to the glory of Christ. But this was not so for the religious leaders who believed in Jesus. They loved something else more. They were captivated by another glory, which for them was their social standing, their position in that society, the praise of men, and this other glory, therefore, choked out their faith. It suffocated their faith until they did not believe. Some of you are feeling spiritually dry. I know this because I've spoken to so many of you. Some of you are feeling spiritually empty and your faith is wavering. And here let me ask you a diagnostic question. What is your glory? Is Christ your glory? His majesty and His beauty? Or is it something else? Has something else captured the lion's share of your energy and of your passions. And I want you to be really, to be honest with yourself. Is it your work? Is it financial security? Does that get your juices flowing? Is that the stuff of your dreams? Is it a boyfriend? Is it a girlfriend? What is your treasure? The most precious thing so that you're willing to lose all other things that you might possess it. Jesus says you cannot have two masters. Either you will love the one and hate the other, or you will hate the one and love the other. You cannot maintain 
faith in Christ while also pursuing another glory. You can't have it both ways. You have to choose. You could only have one Lord. All right, number four, the urgency of now. So now we're going to look at Jesus' response to unbelief. And he gives us two things. Actually, he gives us multiple things, but we're only going to look at two, two interlocking things. The first one is verse 35. Listen to what Jesus says. The light is among you for a little while longer. He says, the light is among you for a little while longer. And so the imagery here is that you're out working in the fields, the sun is setting, soon it will become dark, and then no more work can be done. And so Jesus says the time to act is now. The window, to, the window of opportunity is now because it's closing. Second uh, Corinthians 6.2, Paul says, Now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. So that when it comes to faith, you cannot presume upon tomorrow. I've heard so many people say, you know, I'm open to Christianity. I'm considering becoming a Christian. But I'd like to do it later on, at a more convenient time. And I want you to consider, with all due respect, the arrogance of that. Because it's arrogant to think that you can control your life, that you can choose a more convenient time. Because how do you know? How do you know that the circumstances will be the same? How do you know that your heart will be the same? Can you control your heart? And here, let me give you a hard-heading application because I've seen this so many times. For the parents of young children, I know you feel overwhelmed and your life is so busy. And what so often happens is that you stop going to church and you stop reading the Bible, you stop doing your devotionals, And you negotiate with yourself, right? You say to yourself, this is only temporary. It's only while my children are young. And then afterwards, afterwards, I'm going to go back to God. I'm going to really get serious about my faith again. And this is not just, you know, young parents. I don't want to just pick on uh, parents of young children. I've seen this so often with people with their careers, You say, these are the crucial years for advancement. So for these years, I'm just going to really tank into and focus on my work, and then then I'm going to recommit to my faith. But how do you know? How do you know? And what happens for so many people, and I've seen this so many times, is that gradually, very gradually, almost imperceptibly, you begin to lose your faith. And as the years roll by, the things of God become less real to you, less relevant to you, and your faith just fades away. 
And it's not intentional, right? It's not where you wanted to go at the beginning of the journey, but it is where you end up. And so Jesus is saying, now is the time of salvation. Don't put it off. Don't wait. Do not presume upon tomorrow. Live every day in preparation as if that this very night God will demand your life. And then you will stand before God and you can say to him, my whole life I've given to you. Last point, Jesus says, walk in the light. Verse 35, look at it again. Jesus says, walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. So while you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. So what does Jesus mean here by walking in the light? Well, in the ancient world, before there were automobiles, walking was just the common, everyday part of living, right? It's just everyday activity. And therefore, when you walk with someone, that expression meant that you were bringing them into your life. You were, you were um, uh, sharing life together. So walking with someone was an act of friendship and deep relationship. This is why in the Bible it so often describes the Christian life as walking with God. Listen to Colossians chapter 2, verse 6 through 7. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. Now, why is this important? It is so important. Because what this tells us, what this metaphor tells us is that faith is not just a one-time act. Faith is not just what you do at the beginning of your Christian life and then you're done. But faith is an ongoing, continual, daily walking and growing with God. This is so, so important because so many of us have been taught and taught badly that all you have to do is believe. All you have to do is pray a prayer, fill out a card, make some kind of commitment at retreat as a teenager, and that makes you a Christian. But listen to me, faith is a living and breathing thing. It is not some inert object but it is a living organism. Think about Jesus' parable of the sower and the seed. Right, The seed goes into the soil, and then what happens? It produces organic life. How do you know that a plant is alive? You know a plant is alive because it is growing. It is developing and bearing fruit because life doesn't stay static. It doesn't stop growing or else it dies. And I think this is so profound because what is Jesus' antidote to unbelief? What is his antidote to unbelief? The remedy, he says, is keep on believing. With whatever faith, measure of faith that you possess, act on that. Grow in that. Or to put it in theological terms, Jesus is saying faith is not just justification, it is sanctification. 
Because faith is not a passive thing, but it is striving. It is maturing. It is enduring through adversity. I want to say to you that I know some of you, and maybe we could even say most of you or many of you, some of you have stopped growing in your faith. Some of you have stopped growing in your faith. And you have stopped growing for a long, long time now. And there's been a kind of complacency that has set in. And some of you, you're not even bothered by it anymore. Because it's gone on for so long, you've, you've made your peace with it. But I want to warn you. I want to warn you, you are not standing still. You are moving towards unbelief. Because the Christian life is like being on a down escalator. The only way that you can make progress is that you have to climb. You have to strive with all your effort. And just by doing nothing, just by standing still, you are actually moving away from God because of our sinful hearts. You're falling away from God. I want to warn you, because that's my job. Colossians 1.28, Paul says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone that we may present everyone mature in Christ. It's my job to warn you. Finally, I want to close with this final reflection. How do we get faith in the first place? And I want to direct your attention all the way back up to verse 32. Jesus says, And I, when I am lifted up, will draw all people to myself. You have to see Jesus dying on the cross. And you have to see it not as some tragic misfortune, not as some shameful defeat, but you have to see that actually Jesus was being lifted up. He was being exalted on the cross that he might draw all people to himself. And so you have to see the glory of Jesus dying on the cross for you. You have to see how beautiful it is. You have to see that it is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. And you have to keep looking at it. And you have to keep thinking about it and studying it until at last it melts your heart. Until at last you are overwhelmed by the beauty of his love. Please join me in prayer. Almighty God, all of us in this room confess, help our unbelief. Unbelief is not just what unbelievers have, but it's what believers struggle with. And we want to be honest with you, and we want to be vulnerable before you. And we ask that you would strengthen our faith. We we ask that you would stir us, wake us up from our deadly slumber, arrest our attention, turn our eyes away from idols and other glories, from the praise of man, 
from romance and money, all the beauties that the world has to offer, and fix our eyes on Jesus Christ and grow our faith. Help us now to walk every day with you. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.